All right. Well, we are going to continue uh, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, and in the uh, ninth chapter of Daniel this morning. Uh, and last time, uh, last time we talked a little bit about the uh, 70 weeks of Daniel. We began uh, this night. We're in the study of Daniel, as you may know. And uh, we began uh, understanding the answer to Daniel's prayer uh, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the return of the people to, uh, you know, to Israel, to Jerusalem. Uh, and remember that uh, the majority of the ninth chapter of Daniel is a prayer that he prays. He recognized that the time was at hand for us to return from Babylon to the, uh, to, back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land. And so he prays, but he doesn't pray, Lord, show me the time. Show me when. Show me the historical events that are going to take place. Let me figure it out. He doesn't pray anything like that at all. He prays for repentance. He prays for the forgiveness of sins because he knew that the reason that they were in the captivity in the first place was because of their sins, specifically of not observing Shabbat, uh, over the course of uh, many, many years. And that's why this was going to be 70 years. And so, uh, uh, by not keeping Shabbat, we should not understand that as just the day, but that epitomized their lack of uh, obedience all the way around. And so, they were sent into captivity. And, and again, Daniel knew that uh, they needed to repent if they were going to return. It was not about dates and times. It was about their heart attitude, see? Uh, and so that's how he prays. Well, at the conclusion of his prayer, Gabriel uh, comes and answers his prayer. And we said last time, Gabriel is a very interesting angel in the Bible because we only read about him in two sections of the Bible, maybe four or five verses, but two places in the Bible. One is... In Daniel, and the other one is in the Gospel of Luke. It's the only place. In Daniel, uh, Gabriel is one who explains some of the visions to Daniel, uh, but especially about the coming of the Messiah at the end of the ninth chapter. And then, interestingly enough, he's the one who explains to Mary what's going on with her and who she is going to give birth to. So there's a great consistency that is a wonderful thing. Those kinds of observations is what makes the Bible so fascinating. How it's all woven together so well, you know, uh, and consistent also. So there you go. Now, so now, I, um, the way that Gabriel answers the prayer is to say, I'm going to give you some understanding that you've not had before. Okay? And he says, 70 weeks have been decreed. Not just 70 years, okay? He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So we said last time that the 70 weeks, literally in Hebrew, it's 77s, or 490. And we know that it's years because it's not qualified by the, by the Hebrew word yamim, which means of days. And I showed last time 
in the 10th chapter of Daniel, in the very same context, so to speak, that when he means days, or you know, weeks of 77s of days, that he says of days. But without that little qualifier, it means years. Literally, 70 weeks in Hebrew, 77s. And the whole context is indeed years. But there's also something else that we didn't say the last time. And that is, and this is very interesting, if you go back to the Torah, to uh, Leviticus, in the 25th chapter, we see this phrase, not having to do with the Feast of Weeks, but here, in Leviticus chapter 25, in verse 8, and this has to do with the year of Jubilee, counting to the year of Jubilee, which was a uh, 50th year where uh, all buying and selling would stop and people would be relieved of all their debts, be set free from debt and go back to their original allotment of land. It's kind of like uh, if you're playing Monopoly and uh, after a while you say, you know what, we're all going to go back to go and we're all going to start over again. That's what the year of Jubilee is. Okay? To my knowledge, it has never actually happened. And I find it fascinating when people become obsessed with, well, is this the year of Jubilee? Is it next year the year of Jubilee? What's the year of Jubilee? I, I, you know, I will just say, well, you, usually the people that are asking that question are well-meaning Christians trying to figure this stuff out. But I will say they, the answer is no, nobody has any idea uh, when the year of Jubilee is. And, and we'll understand a little bit about that in just a second. All right, so it says in Leviticus 25, in verse 8, you are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. Okay? And then it says, you shall sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn. And then it says, you shall consecrate the 50th year to proclaim a release to the land, to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his own family. You shall have a jubilee, and you shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines. So, very interesting. There you also have this seven sevens, called seven Sabbaths, in Daniel 9, it's called seven weeks, which literally, again, literally is 77s in, uh, in Daniel. Now, it's interesting because if you go to Isaiah chapter 61 now, in Isaiah chapter 61, we read at the beginning of the chapter, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And then the passage goes on. It talks about rebuilding the ancient ruins, rebuilding the city, and so on and so forth. What's interesting about this is, is that the way that the beginning of Isaiah 61 is described, it's described as what the year of Jubilee is supposed to do. And it's called the favorable year of the Lord. The favorable year of the Lord. Okay? So I would suggest to us 
that by the time of Isaiah, by the time of Isaiah, that the idea of the year of Jubilee is used as a metaphor or a picture of the consummation. Even in Isaiah's day, the, the year of Jubilee or the favorable year of the Lord, when release is given to all who are held captive. Okay. Now, now turn with me to, uh, let's see, let's turn to, let's go back to Isaiah 9, or uh, uh, Daniel 9 right now. Okay? Now, so if you look carefully at verse 24, when he says 70 weeks have been decreed, okay, it's similar to this idea of the year of Jubilee. Similar, not the same exactly, okay? Seven, seven, seventy-sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city. We said this last time. Notice that the object is not the whole world, but it is Jerusalem and the Jewish people. It affects the whole world, no doubt, but very specifically, what Gabriel is talking to Daniel about uh, is the ultimate end of the exile for Israel, okay? And he says, right, to make an end of sin, atonement for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness, seal of vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. I would suggest to us that this description is not the same as the year of Jubilee, but it's, it inclu it's inclusive of all the things that add up and lead up to the consummation of everything, to uh, the end of sin, the end of captivity, the end of bondage, where there is freedom, where we function in this world the way God had originally intended for us to function, and so on. And that is what uh, Gabriel is explaining to Daniel. That what I'm going to tell you, it's not just the 70 years of captivity, but it is ultimately 490 years cut up into individual parts, as we'll see, that at the end of it is this ultimate uh, year of jubilee, this ultimate consummation, release from bondage, uh, uh, a favorable year of the Lord. Okay? Now here's what's really interesting. Now if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, to the fourth chapter in the Brit Hadashah. Remember that, you know, this is one of those good times to recognize that the Bible is consistent all the way, and the Bible contains uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, and we could say the Greek Scriptures, as one Hebrew, one Jewish Bible. That's a better way to say that, right? Some of it's written in Hebrew, some of it's even written in Aramaic, and some of it's written in Greek. But it's all one Jewish Bible. The reason I say that, that is contrary to what is ingrained in our lives, the way we view the, the Bible, especially as a, as a Jewish Messiah follower. You know, that the New Covenant, yes, it's Jewish and all that, but for uh, most of my life, I understood this as the Bible of the Gentiles. Now I'm beginning to understand it's the Bible of, of the Jewish people also. And so isn't that an interesting way to look at it when we say, if we differentiate it by the language that it's written in, right? So part of it is written in Hebrew, part of it is written in Aramaic, and part of it is written in Greek, but one Jewish Bible. So now if you turn to Luke chapter 4, Yeshua is in his hometown of Nazareth, and it's Shabbat, and he goes to the synagogue, and they give him the opportunity to read. Okay? So uh, you see in verse uh, 16... 
of Luke 4, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened up the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set those free who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then it says, And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't that fascinating? So Yeshua saw himself as the one who's in Isaiah 61. All right? He understood himself as the one who is ultimately bringing the favorable year of the Lord, this spiritualized year of Jubilee, this metaphorical year of Jubilee, when there is release to captives, when we're not uh, a captive to the bondage of, of sin and and the debt of sin, and when uh, we can really function in renewed and restored and regenerated bodies and a renewed and restored and regenerated earth the way that God had originally intended us to, to be, you see. So when you look at Daniel chapter 9 and what's supposed to happen at the end of that 490-year period, that's what Yeshua is ultimately describing. So... What Gabriel is explaining to Daniel is that while we're rooted in this historical moment, and yes, the end of the 70 years is going to happen, and the end of this exile in Babylon is over, it is one link in the chain of the ultimate fulfillment of uh, the end of the exile, and of true freedom, and of true redemption. And I would say that is a very healthy way when we look at current events is not to see them as the an, the, an end unto themselves. Now, it may be, you know, God, God is the one with the timepiece, you know, not us, all right? But so then you might say, how do we view current events? We view current events as links in the chain to the end. When that is, is in God's hands. But it's not as if God is absent, and it is not as if he's just left us here on an, on an island, you know, to fend for ourselves. But both the good things and the bad things are pictures of things to come. Pictures, types, events of things to come. And every time something takes place, it's moving us closer to the ultimate fulfillment. Like, as I said, I think, last time, some authors refer to it as generic fulfillments. The, just the moving forward of history, and we see these uh, pictures of either its redemption or of judgment sort of unfolding. Uh, not as, God must do this now, this is the end. That is a recipe for disaster because it never happens, right? Think about this. For the past 2,000 plus years, every time... There's been an event, and every time someone says this is the end, every single time they've been wrong. There's no exception to that rule. 100% of the time they've been wrong. And boy, right in our time right now, you know, uh, I mean, I, I need to go back in some websites uh, that, because that's where, you know, that's where reality is. It's on the internet. 
you know, for many people, sadly, uh, that, uh, oh, by the end of September, oh, no, you know. And so what did I read recently? I read recently one person, I'm not going to name any names, said, well, you know, the stock market did take that plunge of a 1,000 points. But what they didn't say is by the end of that day, it actually had rebounded. <laughs> that, you know, it was not, uh, I mean, that's really, that's really being desperate, you know. Uh, and also, as I like to say, and many others have said, it's not as if the New York Stock Exchange is the primary uh, uh, a telltale sign of the return of the Lord, all right? Otherwise, he might have thought about coming back in 1929. But who am I? Okay, all right? So the point uh, uh, being here that it's all consistent. It's all consistent. Isaiah 61, this release, this uh, consummation. Daniel 9, Luke chapter 4, uh, the year of Jubilee. So Gabriel is telling Daniel that what you're going to experience is a link in the chain. It's not the ultimate end of exile. All right? But historically, it certainly is very important. So now, in the next couple of verses, he's going to explain a little more about this 77s, this 490 years. He's going to give us some additional information. Because if we don't have this additional information in the next two verses, we would think then that starting at the end of, uh, from the day Gabriel told him uh, the, the, the answer to his prayer of the return, that uh, it would be 490 years from that day, right? So Gabriel now has told Daniel, again I'll say it, about the ultimate return. Daniel's vision can only be in his historical moment. He does not have a crystal ball. He doesn't know the future. He's concerned about his moment in history. And Gabriel says, I'm going to give you an expanded view of history. So now, verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So first, he mentions two things and then two time periods, right? Restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There's seven weeks, seven years, and 434 years. Okay? That's what seven, remember, it's all weeks. Weeks is seven. Just like the word dozen in English means 12. Week is Shavuah. Just like we say Shavuah Tov, you know, uh, on Saturday night, and I have a good week to a good week. It means, set, literally, it means seven. So seven weeks, seven times seven uh, is 49 years. Uh, seven times 62, as I take my shoes and socks off, I, uh, is 434 years, okay? All right. So, first of all, what is the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? This is important. It's in Nehemiah, in the second chapter, when uh, Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king, is told to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The year was 444 BCE, or BC, okay? We know the walls were rebuilt in the time period allotted. You can read the book of Nehemiah, you know, and you can read all, all about the, the trouble of, of rebuilding those walls. And then it says, then another 434 years and 
the anointed one will be cut off. All right? Now, if you do the math, you come to approximately, approximately between 30 and 32, uh, what, we would say, what we would say today, A.D. or C.E., which is the time period that Yeshua dies. It's fascinating. Okay? So now here's the answer to the question that I know you may be thinking, and that is, so how come everybody doesn't see this? Whereas, I mean, how come uh, uh, it's not, like, it's, if it's so clear, how come not everybody understands this? There's a reason for it. Many people understand, and this is, this is the traditional Jewish understanding that, that, you would, un, that you would get, that when it says a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that that's a euphemism for build the temple, building the second temple. But that's a different time period. Build, the rebuilding of the second temple was, in the, uh, was before the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Okay? That's very important. The end of the captivity was in 516, all right? The, uh, B.C. 516. little history lesson here. Uh, and then the temple was rebuilt, and then Jerusalem was uh, rebuilt around it. Okay? That's important. So, that, because if you start with the uh, rebuilding of the temple, and then you add the right number of years, the 434 years after that, okay? Uh, and you, uh, well, the, seven, the 49 years and the 434 years, you come to about 135 B.C., okay, if you follow me. You come to about 135. So there was a priest, and his name was Onias, and he was assassinated, okay? It was inconsequential to anything. It was inconsequential to anything. There was great, if you know the history, there was great uh, sin and debauchery at that time, and this priest was assassinated, Okay? around 135. So if you don't start at the right year and the clock starts ticking, you don't end at the right year, okay? The word for Messiah in this text, in uh, verse 25, is anointed one, anointed one. So anointed one could be a priest, a king could be an anointed one, a, uh, a religious leader could be an anointed one. It is the Hebrew word for Mashiach, which is where we get the word Messiah from, and that's why in many of your Bibles it's translated Messiah. But, it, but uh, literally, it would be anointed one, okay? Just the one who's anointed, okay? Uh, the prince, the leader, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, okay? And again, it will be built again with plaz and moat, and even in times of distress. Now, the way, the way that we understand this is the clock starts to tick in 444 B.C., okay? The temple is rebuilt, not the temple, the city, the walls of the city are rebuilt, okay? And then another 400 plus years uh, uh, moves on, uh, and uh, then we, we see that uh, after this time, the Messiah would be cut off. Not on that day, but after that time, the Messiah would be cut off. The anointed one would be cut off. Now that is a fascinating statement, the Messiah, the anointed one would be cut off. Uh, die, have nothing. That is like an anomaly because the understanding of the anointed one, especially the anointed one, the prince, one who is to come prophetically, is one who's going to do great things, not die, not be cut off. 
this is a strange statement, okay? Uh, Daniel is praying and asking about the end of the exile, and it's interesting that what does Gabriel say? Yes, that the end is going to be the end of sin. Righteousness is going to come in. Uh, you know, the anointing of the most holy place. It's all good. But yet, it seems strange that what ends up happening is, is the Messiah is cut off, dies. But that is indeed, as we understand it now, looking at, looking at it in hindsight, in Daniel's day, it was all in the future. Okay? But as we understand it, looking in hindsight, that's, this is what has taken place. It's not all done, but so far what we know historically, in 2015, what we know historically that has taken place, according to this passage, is, is that the walls of the temple were rebuilt, and after uh, 70 years, or 49 years and 434 years, which, by the way, adds up to 483 years, that time period ended, and soon after that time period, Yeshua dies. So far, that's what we know. That has indeed taken place. All right, then it says, um, okay, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And then it says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Okay, so now you have a fascinating little phrase. The prince of the people who's to come. Okay, so what we do know historically is that Within a series of years, about 40 years or so, after, uh, after the end of that 483 period, the Messiah dies, and then we know that the Romans did indeed destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay? But this prince, it says the, the people, if you read it carefully, the people, it is people and there's the prince. Okay? The people will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The prince is to come. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that's, that happened. The prince who is to come is not the Messiah, the prince, but the prince who represents what would have been the Roman Empire, some world leader at some time in the future is going to come. Well, what's he going to do? Well, that we... That has not happened yet. But we know that after that, 400, after that 483 years, the Messiah is cut off, and the people of the prince who is to come destroy the city and the sanctuary. That has taken place. That's what we know now. But 483 years, there's still seven years to go, or one more week of years that are unaccounted for. Okay? So it's kind of like after, uh, after the 62 and the four, and the, after the seven years and the 62 years added up as 483 years from the time of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, the clock stops. The clock has stopped. And just like the text says, the Messiah now has, he's died for our sins and, and risen from the dead, but he's, cut, he's been cut off, and the temple and the city are destroyed, just like the text says. Now, the next verse. Hasn't happened yet. Those last unaccounted for seven years. 
And he will make a firm covenant. This prince will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who will make desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is pour out uh, on the one who makes desolate. So this exp- helps us to understand some things about this unaccounted for last seven-year period. Okay, At the beginning of this last seven-year period, this prince of, we'll just say of the Romans, whatever that means at the end, it could mean a lot of, some world leader will make a covenant with the Jewish people for seven years, one week, seven years. And there's evidently going to be a temple because there's going to be offerings that are going to stop. So that means there's got to be a temple if there's going to be offerings that are going to stop. And in the middle of that week, after like three and a half years or so, is when something that's called the abomination of desolation is going to come. Okay? Now, we might say, Howard, how do you know that uh, this is in the future? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24 in the New Covenant. In Matthew chapter 24, Yeshua talks about this, where where you read here, uh, let's see, uh, in verse, uh, yes, there it is, exactly, good. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Let, when, he, when he says, let the reader understand that this is about what Daniel had prophesied. Okay? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on, on the housetop not go down to get the things out uh, that are in his house. And so on. So, Yeshua himself talks about this abomination of desolation, which has not yet taken place, which is going to take place. And if you read the rest of the passage, it's, he's referring to this terrible time of persecution, which will culminate in his return, okay? Which will culminate uh, in Yeshua coming back uh, to bring restoration uh, to Israel and to the world, okay? And so... Back in Daniel chapter 9, that year has not taken place yet. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, it leads sometimes to much speculation. Okay? It leads to much speculation. Uh, and this is where people, uh, this is the beginning of the idea, but it's, it's said in other places, where people are trying to figure out who is this one? Who is. You know, the, uh, in the New Covenant, there is a phrase called the spirit of the Antichrist, okay? Uh, which is uh, the, um, uh, a, uh, a sense of a, a rebellion that, that, it, that exists in the world. And then it articulates that there will be this one who will come. And, uh, and th- that will do all kinds of, of uh, evil, uh, in terms of making this promise to Israel and breaking the promise and all hell will break loose and so on. But here in Daniel 9, it is in this last, this, it's called the 70th week of Daniel. That is this last seven-year period before the return of Yeshua. And, and, and we see that, that uh, what Gabriel is explaining is, is that while you will return from this exile, it's like a band-aid. The real exile is, is the, the, the sin 
that captivates this world and that Israel really will not be redeemed ultimately out of exile until the end. And I would suggest that, look at today. When we talk about exile, it's not just physical exile out of the land. It's talking about Israel was exiled because of sin and rebellion against God and sent off to Babylon. When the Jewish people returned after the 70 years, we might say in a very temporal way, a very like temporary way, the exile is over. But the fact is the exile was not over, really, because the people still were in rebellion uh, 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 of God. It's not a pretty history. And ultimately, they went into captivity again for 2,000 years this time. And so now our people have returned to the land. But I would suggest that in a certain respect, we're still in exile on several levels. One is, there certainly is no peace in the land. There certainly uh, is, is no peace in the land. Number two is, there is great um, uh, ungodliness in the land. Number two, okay. Uh, number three is, we as a people have yet to embrace Yeshua, the Messiah. Okay. Uh, uh, that doesn't, uh, you know, that does not mean, now I need to adjust a little qualifier. That does not mean that uh, I... Uh, God did not bring our people back to the land. He certainly brought our people back to the land. But what he desires, just like when, you know, um, Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 23, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, how I've wanted to gather you together the way a hen gathers her chicks, but you, but you are unwilling. The people had not been exiled yet when he said that. He said that to Jewish people in Jerusalem. Like, like a, a lament, oh, how I wanted to gather you together the way a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. In other words, I am the protection, but you're not willing to come to me. In the very same way, today, I would suggest Yeshua cries out the very same thing. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. How I've wanted to gather you together the way a hen gathers her chicks, but you're still unwilling. It's a dangerous place to be. We need to always be praying that God would take the scales off of the eyes of our people so that they would embrace Yeshua. And you see here in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel is saying the exile, it's not over till it's over. And that there's going to still, we're still going to, even though you're going to go back, there's still going to be an exile. And so this is a very relevant passage to today. Today the Messiah has come. We know that from the passage. Yeshua, in the, in the right time frame, he has uh, been cut off and have nothing, died. But we know that the purpose of that death was the atonement of our sins. And so in a certain respect, he's ushered in these last days. But it won't be over until this last seven-year period is completed. See, And so we need to pray that our people would, would understand and believe this and turn to Yeshua the Messiah. So their personal captivity can end. But as a people, it's not until we embrace Yeshua the Messiah. Till we recognize, as it says in Zechariah the prophet, till we recognize him whom we have pierced and we mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Then a fountain of forgiveness will be opened up. And there really will be the judgment of our enemies and peace in the land and all those things. But it isn't going to come by peace treaties. It comes 
by confessing our sins and repenting, which is exactly what Daniel understood, that exile ends through repentance. And that is what our people need, is what, is what this world needs. When you look at what's going on in Jerusalem today, what everybody needs is Yeshua. What everybody needs is the Messiah of Israel. Whether you're talking about Palestinians, Arabs, Jews, whoever, it is Yeshua who brings the peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He's not the Prince who makes a peace treaty. That's what's going on in this 70th week of Daniel. He's not a Prince who makes a peace treaty. He is the Prince of Peace. And that where he is and where he dwells, there is indeed peace. And that is what Paul is referring to in Ephesians chapter 2 when he talks about the middle wall of partition being broken down and the two are one. Natural enemies in this world make peace. See, And that is indeed what the future holds. We don't see that now. So in a sense, we're all still in exile. Even in the land, we're still all in exile. But that day will come. That day will come. But we can have that that sense of peace for our own selves and our own lives when we embrace the Messiah today. But Gabriel is saying the day will come when this time period will be completed and there will be the cleansing, there will be the repentance. And, uh, and the scriptures in many other places talk about it taking place. But the good news is, is that the day will come when all of sin will be judged and, and there will be... Uh, um, as it says here, there will be an end of sin. There'll be the, the end of transgression, the end of sin, atonement, everlasting righteousness, uh, sealing up vision and prophecy, and anointing the most holy place. Today, the most holy place is trodden down by the nations, which the Bible also said would happen. Uh, it's not ready to be anointed yet, the most holy place. Uh, and uh, But you see... I hope that what we can get out of this is not just some kind of uh, great, uh, really uh, cool thing to learn about end-time prophecy, but to recognize that the answer is in the Messiah. The answer is in Yeshua. And God has raised up people today to demonstrate that kind of life. Jews and Gentiles, uh, Arabs and Jews who embrace Yeshua, who are at peace with indeed one another, to demonstrate that, see, this is indeed the answer. When people say no, uh, you know, the answer is, uh, is peace treaties. Well, I would say 100%. Just like the, what, here, what does time setting and peace treaties all have in common? 100% of the time, they don't hold up. Why don't they hold up? Because they're all based on the responsibility of man to make it or to keep it. And we are all sinners we all are flawed human beings. And so every world leader decision having to do with this land is going to fail. Regardless of, of our hopes and dreams for our people in Eretz Yisrael and, and uh, the moral and legitimate right of Israel to be a self-sustaining country and believing all that and being a Zionist to the end. And all, absolutely. But having said all that, I hope I don't have to say that, you know, uh, but having said all of that, I know that the answer is not a prime minister, a president, a, a geopolitical solution, but the prince of peace. 
the Messiah, Yeshua. He's the one whom Gabriel is talking about, that after all is said and done, will usher in this great period of peace. And we need to pray for individuals to embrace Yeshua because they're still hanging out there seven years. Seven years of persecution. Seven years, the Bible refers to it as tribulation. At the end of that, finally, will come the consummation. When Yeshua returns, sits on his throne in Jerusalem, and for a thousand years and beyond, uh, uh, there will be this peace that we all, it seems to, well, we find so elusive. But we need to pray that right now, people embrace uh, Yeshua and live by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh and all those values. And may there truly be peace um, in this world uh, today. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, thank you that uh, you have given us sort of an outline from Gabriel of how it's all going to play out and how history is indeed moving forward and that you do indeed have a plan for this history. But Lord, even though you have a plan for this history, you understand, just like Moses understood the heart of the people just before he died, so you understand the heart of people, that there's going to be rebellion, rebellion, and rebellion no matter what, and it will culminate in a terrible period just before, it's darkest just before the dawn, that just before the great consummation, there will be great darkness in this world. Lord, we don't know when that is going to be. Lord, but we, what we do know is that you have the world and its history in the palm of your hand. And today, just as in Yeshua's day when he lived, Lord, you still cry out to our people saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how much I've, gathered, I've wanted to gather you together the way a hen gathers her chicks. May we heed that call. May we embrace Messiah Yeshua and really fulfill the calling that you've called Israel to, Lord. We thank you, Lord for the grace, unmerited favor in returning us to the land, even in unbelief, as your word says in Ezekiel. Thank you, Lord, that even in unbelief, you have returned us to the land. But Lord, there's still turmoil, and there will continue to be turmoil until every tongue shall confess, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Yeshua, the Messiah, is the Lord. We look forward to that day. We pray in that day. We hope for that day. And we pray in Messiah's name.